The views and opinions expressed by contributors on the Spoon River Gothic podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the position of the host. Material heard on the Spoon River Gothic podcast is intended for adult listeners. This podcast deals with mature topics that may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. This is Spoon River Gothic, narrative of a double homicide. Starting any podcast, no matter the genre, requires dedication. But for true crime especially, research is the most essential ingredient. An excellent true crime podcast requires a great deal of investigation to tell a compelling story, which listeners like you deserve. Our goal is to take you deep into the inner minds of the players, from murderers to witnesses to the victims themselves, to get the most exciting information. We must not only dig deep below the surface to find new stories, court dockets, and case files, but we seek to conduct our own interviews with as many witnesses as possible to paint as accurate of a picture of the case that the victims deserve. For a good episode, we need first to uncover the details of the crime, including the what, when, where, why, and who, and all the elements that make the crime unique. As we unravel the crime in such a way that reads like a good mystery novel, with twists and turns that keep you as listeners hooked until the end, it is the who that matters most. That human element that draws us in and provides a common connection allowing us all to relate. So as we dig into these files and uncover as many names as possible, our skilled researchers then do their utmost to track down the voices and stories behind those names. Now we all love a good true crime story, but most of us, for good reason, prefer that unfortunate story to have occurred afar. Nearly no one wants that story to hit too close to home, because if it does, it might be your phone you find ringing, with one of our highly talented researchers on the other end to greet you. And there is no denying that the immediate response we often get is, how did you find my number? In this day and age, almost anyone can be found online because your private information is no longer private. In today's world, the risk of being tracked online is a significant concern. Anyone, like a coworker, a new online date, or even a stranger can pose a threat if they gain access to your personal information. Your personal information is already exposed whether you like it or not. In fact, the average person, including you, will have over 2,400 pieces of personal information exposed online over the next two years. Your online reputation is everything, and 40% of information data brokers have on 
wrong people is inaccurate. This could mean lost job opportunities, higher insurance premiums, or even wrongful arrest. And after hearing our podcast, we all know this could lead to something much darker. And everyone knows that is not a risk you should be willing to take. But did you know there is a legit way to make your personal data yours again? Spooner for Gothic has partnered with number one personal data removal service, DeleteMe. Since 2011, DeleteMe has made it quick, easy, and safe for listeners like you to remove your personal data online. But how does DeleteMe work? Well, it's quick and easy. You just sign up at joindeleteme.com backslash spoon river and submit your personal information for removal from search engines. Next, the removal process begins as DeleteMe experts find and remove your personal information, and you will then receive a detailed DeleteMe report within seven days. And that's not it. DeleteMe experts will continue to scan and delete any detected personal information every three months throughout the year. Since 2011, DeleteMe has saved users over 54 years. That's 20,000 hours of required effort to remove personal information from online sources. DeleteMe has developed the most comprehensive, thorough, and transparent information removal product on the market. And that is why PCMag.com named DeleteMe excellent, the most outstanding product in its category. With an average rating of 4.7 out of 5 stars, DeleteMe has over 800 plus reviews and an A-plus rating by the Better Business Bureau. So know that you can trust this industry leader in online personal data removal. Also, the DeleteMe team is always there to help you and prides itself on its outstanding customer service and a 100% satisfaction guarantee. The DeleteMe team is not happy if you're not happy. Your privacy is their business. So join DeleteMe now risk-free at joindeleteme.com backslash spoon river because no one wants to be a victim or a suspect so get protected before it's too late and next time that case hits too close to home you will not find yourself asking that strange person on the other end of the line how did you find my number again that's joindeleteme.com backslash spoon river Chapter 61, The People vs. Bull, Part 2, I'm Glad She's Gone. I fear death very much. Donald R. Bull. April 3rd, evidence matches murder suspect's DNA, expert says. Only one or two people in the world match sample found in victim, scientist tells jury. The Puro Journal Star article read, Carthage. Only two people in the world have genetic material matching DNA evidence found at the site of the murder of a mother and daughter, and Donald Bull Jr. is one of them, a forensic scientist testified Tuesday. David Metzger of the state police told a jury on the seventh day of testimony in Bull's double murder trial that the odds are billions to one that semen found in Donna Tompkins after her January 13, 1993 death would come from anyone besides Bull. Based on statistical calculations, Metzger said he would expect to find semen only in one of every 3.8 billion Caucasians and only one in every 10 billion African Americans, and added that there are only about 6 billion people on Earth. However, Metzger's testimony was challenged by defense attorney Alyssa McMillan who sought to keep the evidence out of the trial because she claimed Metzger used sloppy laboratory techniques and disputed his statistical methodology. Earlier in the day, attorneys attempted to poke holes in earlier testimony concerning the actions of Bull and David Haynes, the man the defense alleges committed the murders. 
Jacqueline Day, the mother of Bull's former girlfriend, Rochelle Hillmeyer, testified that at about 7.30 a.m. on January 13th, she saw her daughter's car parked in an alley near the Tompkins apartment. She noted that she got out to inspect the car and couldn't find anything wrong with it. If you recall, ladies and gentlemen, in terms of changed narratives or stories, this statement falls in suit in that Jacqueline initially told police she had not seen her daughter's car while out that morning, and it was not until a year later that this claim suddenly came into fruition. Witnesses testified Monday that Bull told them he slept in the car that night after hurting his leg while trying to fix a flat tire. Also Tuesday, State Fire Investigator Ted Anderson testified under defense questioning that he found shattered glass near the apartment door and determined the glass was probably broken before the fire or in its early stages. That determination was made because the glass didn't show signs of rapid heating and cooling, which happens when glass in a fire is cooled by water. Haynes testified last week that he broke the glass in Tompkins' door in an attempt to get into her apartment after he realized there was a fire. April 4th, defense targets charge. Bull's attorneys want seventh murder charge dismissed. Peoria Journal Star, Carthage. Defense attorneys sought dismissal of a murder charge Wednesday. As prosecutors finished up their case against Donald Bull Jr., Bull is charged with seven counts of first degree murder, one count of aggravated arson, and two counts of concealment of a homicidal death. But the seventh murder charge, the one that alleges Bull sexually assaulted Tompkins during the course of the murder, should be dismissed according to defense attorney Alyssa McMillan, because the prosecution failed to show any evidence of his sexual assault. I don't believe I heard any evidence or testimony about sexual assault, and I believe that count should be dismissed, she argued before Judge William Henderson after testimony ended Wednesday. But prosecutor Edward Parkinson argued that semen linked Bull through DNA testing that was found in Tompkins, and he also argued the testimony of jail inmate Chris Chester supported the sex assault murder count. Chester testified that Bull, while in jail, told him that he went to Tompkins' house early on the morning of January 13th and killed Tompkins when he was spurned. McMillan countered that Chester's testimony did not indicate a sexual assault occurred. That may be what the state wanted to prove, she said, but I don't think there was any evidence to show it. Henderson is expected to rule on the dismissal motion this morning. Ladies and gentlemen, the motion was denied. In another testimony Wednesday, State Police Investigator Kenneth Kedzer said a ring was found among Bull's belongings in a home of Bull's ex-girlfriend in March of 1993. The ring was identified as Tompkins earlier this week by Tompkins' sisters Anne Smiley and Susan Amicucci, and again on Wednesday by Tompkins' co-workers Joanne Folk and Jennifer McMillan. It is important to note, ladies and gentlemen, that this statement made by the Peoria General Star is debatable and in fact will be debated, not only in closing arguments, but in later appeals. As in actuality, not a single witness was able to clearly state that unequivocally this ring in fact did belong to Donna. And jeweler William Ricketts even testified that while the ring bore a resemblance to a ring worn by Tompkins in family photos, that there was nothing terribly distinctive about the ring. I'm sure there are hundreds of them out there, he said. I've made zillions of them. Kedzer and Kenton Police Detective Marty Bowden also testified that Bowles said in a January 1993 interview 
that he had spent the early morning hours of January 13th sleeping in his girlfriend's car in the driveway of their home after he hurt himself while trying to change a flat tire in the vehicle. Boaten also testified that Bull changed his story on March 1993 and said that the flat tire had occurred on 2nd and Oak Street in Canton and that both stories conflicted with testimony from other witnesses. However, ladies and gentlemen, again, I find it odd that Donnie would change his story to position his car closer to Don Tompkins' house, seeing what police would make of it. And again, only those changed stories made by Donnie Bull seem to matter much to the court at this point, not any of the other witnesses, including initial suspect David Haynes. I must mention again, if a great deal of the foundation of this case against Donnie was built upon this changed story as to where he slept after getting a flat, how can Jacqueline Day's changed story pass as truth before God, let alone that David Haynes changed his story about the events that unfolded before his very eyes as the bodies of Don and Justine Tompkins burnt to char in real time? These questions must be asked because the answer to such shall define whether this trial was factual, fair, and impartial. And this is something that affects us all and could have partially affected the lives and safety of others should a killer still be roaming the streets. April 5th. Defense focuses on a man who reported apartment fire. Murder defendant's lawyers have said victim's co-workers should be the prime suspect. Peoria Journal Star, Carthage. David Haynes, a co-worker of Donald Tompkins and the man who reported the fire that consumed the bodies of Tompkins and her daughter, became the focus of the Donald Bull Jr. murder trial Thursday as the defense began its case. Defense attorneys have said it is Haynes, not Bull, who should be the prime suspect in the deaths of Donald Tompkins 30 and 3-year-old Justine, both of Canton. Haynes, who testified last week and Thursday, denies any involvement with the deaths. Haynes last week testified that he called emergency crews to Tompkins' apartment on January 13, 1993 after he went to her home when she didn't appear for work. He said he noticed the fire only after he got no response to his knock on the door and pulled an air conditioner from a window. State fire investigator Ted Anderson testified Thursday. He initially did not believe Haynes' account that he entered the apartment for a moment. Anderson said he thought Haynes would have been choked by smoke or blown back by flames had he attempted to enter. But Henderson now said he believes that the fire had died down to a smolder by the time Haynes arrived, which is why Haynes would have not detected any smoke before he opened the window. Anderson said he thinks the fire reignited when Haynes let in more oxygen. Ladies and gentlemen, the statement that David, or anyone in or around the home for that matter, including the other tenants, would not have detected smoke before David opened the window simply because the fire had yet to be reignited when more oxygen was let in, brings to mind the common wisdom that smoke usually increases as a fire begins to extinguish. Does it not? Moving along. Anderson acknowledged to defense attorney Dean Stone that the conclusion was not in his official reports. You only have the reports of the first eight days of my investigation, Anderson said. If I may interject once again, Ted Anderson's initial report claimed the fire, fueled by accelerants, was hot, fast, and intense. 
but I would like you to consider how likely it would have been for a fire fueled by accelerants, one burning hot, fast, and intense, a sofa bed and bedding made from highly flammable materials soaked in gasoline, kerosene, and methyl alcohol to die down and extinguish on its own before catching any of the curtains on fire, the wall, the ceiling of the home, which at the time of the blaze was 93 years old, let alone for smoke to seep through the cracks of the old house into the other apartments, not until David Haynes came along and refueled the blaze by opening a window. What do you think, ladies and gentlemen? It's just a thought, one I'd like you to consider, because I highly doubt it is only me who feels a bit skeptical about this matter. In fact, nothing about the explanation of this undetectable hot, fast, and intense blaze seems to add up. Nothing but the simple explanation that it had not actually been reignited at 9.15am, but that it was ignited at 9.15am. After all, who was at the scene of the double homicide at 9.15am? None other than a man who claims he knows more about fire than the average person. The man who fueled the fire by pulling the air conditioner out of the window of his employee's home. Obviously a task not within the scope of his job description. A man who has suggested that he might have kicked over a bucket of accelerant as he stepped in the door. A man who told police he might have set off a booby trap that morning when he called and the answering machine picked up. A man who supposedly had an extramarital affair with Donna who had dated Donna for hiring her on as a secretary at the bank. Even David's boss, Mr. App, said of David's wife, Sarah, that Sarah was jealous of Donna and that she knew Donna had slept with Dave. Even Mr. App's wife had said Sarah would say that she was mad at Dave and that he was in the doghouse for staying out too late. In addition, nearly everyone at the bank, let alone the Elks where Donna worked her part-time job and David hung out on his spare time, as well as the Tompkins' extended family, all believe that David was a man not only involved with Donna, but that his wife also knew about the affair, and that David had his own key to Donna's apartment. This is a man who, under questioning by Alyssa McMillan about a reported kiss in his office that he had given Donna four to five days before her death, denied such a kiss. Haynes said the kiss never happened. Tompkins did hug him early that Friday, he said, but it was only because he had found a way to help her save money on taxes. This is a statement by David that contradicts the account as told by witnesses at the bank. Witnesses who claim to have seen with their own eyes the two kissing in his office. Witnesses from the same bunch whose testimony had been taken as fact that they recognized the ring as Donna's. Also Thursday, Michelle Johnson, who worked at the Canton Kroger store in 1993, testified about a conversation between Haynes and an unidentified man, which she said she overheard. In that conversation, according to Johnson, Haynes said he was glad Tompkins was dead and that he knew how the fire began. We asked David during the interview with us about these statements. I'm glad that she's gone because I was having an affair with her and was sleeping in her bed. Well, you know I worked with her and we had an affair. I'm glad she's gone. We had an affair and I was afraid that her husband would kill me. I know exactly how the house burned down. I know him personally. And David avoided the question until he eventually skirted back around, but only on his own terms, suggesting that such a comment, if made, was only made in jest, tongue in cheek, so to speak, and in so many words. 
but never denied that such a conversation had in fact occurred. However, David denied ever having such a conversation on the stand that day before God. On April 8th, among several defense expert witnesses, forensic pathologist Nancy Jones took the stand. The doctor was asked by defense counsel, Alyssa McMillan, Doctor, in your review of all the documents and pictures regarding this case, have you run across any evidence whatsoever of strangulation? Her answer, no, I have not. For either of the two parties? For neither one. Doctor, in your review of all the information in autopsy report, coroner's report, and whatever, have you run across any evidence of smothering for either one of the parties? No, I have not. And doctor, briefly tell us, what could be evidence of strangulation or smothering? Evidence of strangulation and smothering. If you have a non-burned body, one may be able to see hemorrhages, small pinpoint hemorrhages, on the face, on the eyelids, or actually inside the eyes, on the whites of the eyes, or on the lining of the inside of the eyelids. If you pull the eyelids down, you frequently see them there. What you may also see is that the face may have a somewhat bluish-purple appearance, above the level of the neck especially during strangulation. But if one were to reflect on the lips down and look inside and inside the mouth, one will very frequently see abrasions, maybe bruises or small lacerations that actually will be shaped very similar to the edges of the teeth. They are somewhat curved. On the internal examination and smothering, one may only see bite marks on the tongue or hemorrhages when the tongue is examined. In strangulation, what one can see is hemorrhages deep within the muscles of the neck. There are several layers, and very frequently the hemorrhages which one encounters are found all the way on the inside just when you get to the cartilage or the more firm structures of the neck because that is where the muscles get crushed against the cartilage. Also, when one examines the epiglottis, which is the small U-shaped piece of tissue that will close down over the trachea or the windpipe when we swallow so that food or liquid we are swallowing doesn't go down the wrong way and make us choke, that particular structure will very frequently have small pinpoint hemorrhages and may have a bluish appearance. The base of the tongue, where the tongue and the epiglottis come together, will very frequently look very congested. The blood vessels will be prominent and have a bluish appearance to it. The hyoid bone, which is a horse-shaped bone at the base of the neck where the muscles of the neck and tongue are anchored, may sometimes be broken and you may have small hemorrhages associated with those breaks. The thyroid cartilage, which is in the Adam's apple, has small corners or horns and they very frequently will break during a strangulation death and almost see a small amount of hemorrhaging associated with that or in the upper areas of the trachea itself, the windpipe where the vocal cords are at, one may see hemorrhages there. And what one sometimes sees a little more subtle is that in, if you open the trachea and you lay it out longitudinally, above a certain level, everything may look bluish and very congested. And below a certain level, it may have the normal tan appearance that a normal trachea will have, so that one can tell that there has been congestion or constriction of the blood vessels above that point. Miss McMillan, was there any evidence of what you have just told us found in the autopsy reports of Donna Tompkins and Justine Tompkins? Dr. Jones? No, there was not. And when cross-examined by the prosecution, Edward Parkinson said, okay, Let's talk about those hemorrhages you talked about. I believe you described them, and I believe you said that in unburned bodies, you would many times find this evidence of hemorrhages. Dr. Jones. Yes, those on the outside, but in burned bodies, you can see them on the inside. Parkinson. 
and you don't always see them, do you? Jones. Um, in what types of cases? Parkinson. Well, in smothering cases, the absence of a hemorrhage doesn't mean that smothering didn't occur. Jones. No, it does not. You can have other findings other than the hemorrhages, yes. Parkinson. So some of these injuries, for instance, the biting of the tongue, the scratching of the inner surface of the underside of the lips that you described, that would have been, in your opinion, helpful concerning a possible struggle that occurred during either strangulation or smothering. Those aren't always present, are they? Jones. In adults with teeth, one or the other is always present. In children with teeth, one or the other is always present. Parkinson. Are you testifying that a man of considerable strength couldn't put his hands over the mouth of a three-year-old girl and thereby suffocate and smother her? And there be no evidence of bite marks on her tongue or scratches on her lips? Are you saying that is impossible? Jones. Actually, if he is pressing down, yes, because he is going to be pressing the inner surface of the mouth against the teeth. And a three-year-old will have teeth. Parkinson. How do people die of suffocation when a pillow is put over their face then? Jones. Well, actually in suffocation, the cases I have had where the individuals have been suffocated by pillows, I have found both intermuscular hemorrhages, bite marks in the tongues, small abrasions inside, and actually small abrasions on the outside of the mouth. Parkinson. Is it your testimony that it is impossible for someone to have been smothered either by their hands or by a pillow? It is impossible for that to occur without some evidence of bite marks on their tongue or on their inner lip. Jones. The only time I have ever seen it it is somebody who does not have teeth, either an infant and an adult who wears dentures and has the dentures out. Parkinson. The conditions of these bodies, the charred conditions of these bodies, wasn't that a significant topic concerning the lack of any of these hemorrhages or bruisings that you might normally look for in an unburned body? Jones. For the outside of the body, yes. But when you're dealing, I have done a lot I have done a lot of charred bodies, examinations on bodies that are charred, and I have done examinations on individuals who have been strangled and smothered prior to being charred. And I have been able to find, by layer by layer dissection of the neck, evidence that strangulation or smothering did occur. Dr. Jones was undoubtedly critical of the theory of the state. In the Pure Journal Star headlines read, Experts critical of conclusions. Defense testimony contradicts state's autopsy, DNA, and arson assertions. Carthage. DNA, medical, and arson experts attacked conclusions made by prosecution experts during the past two weeks of the Donald Bull Jr. double murder trial as Bull's defense rests its case Monday. Nancy Jones, a forensic pathologist from Chicago, also questioned claims made by prosecution experts. In direct conflict with testimony made by state's witness John Murphy, she said Don and Justine Tompkins more than likely died in the fire, not from strangulation or smothering. Murphy testified last week that he was convinced the two were dead before the fire because there was no soot in their throats or because carbon monoxide levels in their blood were lower than what would expect to find in fire victims. He said the two had likely been strangled or smothered before the fire. But Jones said, had the Tompkins been strangled or smothered, there would have been bite marks on their tongues and insides of their mouth, since anyone with teeth will often bite themselves as they struggle for air while being suffocated. Furthermore, she said the blood levels and lack of soot were inconsequential because people die rapidly in fire by inhaling superheated gases, which can kill without leaving marks. 
Dr. Murphy is making a mistake here, she said. He's missing some of the subtle findings. Bull, 33, allegedly sexually assaulted Donna Tompkins early that morning, then strangled or smothered the two before setting fire to their apartment to destroy the evidence. Bull's defense attorneys maintain that authorities have overlooked more likely suspects, such as a co-worker of the Tompkins, and that police and fire officials have conspired to shift investigation focus to Bull. Ronald Ostrowski, a professor from the University of North Carolina, was the first expert to take the stand on Wednesday. Under questioning from defense attorney Alyssa McMillan, he testified at the DNA test that last identified Bull as a man who most likely had sex with Donna Tompkins before her death were flawed. Last week, David Metzger of the state police testified that the odds were billions to one that the semen found in Tompkins came from any other man but Bull. However, Ostrowski said Metzger ran Bull's DNA sample on a separate gel than test-run samples taken from Tompkins and other suspects that could throw off results since different gels sometimes have different impacts on samples. Furthermore, he said Metzger never performed a test called band shifting, which checks for imperfections in DNA samples. Without that testing, he said, a scientist couldn't be sure that any results are accurate. Francis Burns, a Chicago fire investigator, testified that he agreed with prosecution experts that the January 1993 fire was an arson. However, he disagreed that the fire ever became a smoldering one, as prosecution experts testified. State fire investigators testified last week that the fire had died to a smolder when Tompkins' co-worker David Haynes arrived on the scene and opened the windows and doors, feeding the flame anew. He said that was how Haynes was able to enter the apartment that morning of the fire when he was trying to check on Tompkins. Defense attorneys claim Haynes would have been standing in the middle of the fire. The prosecution is expected to present rebuttal evidence today. Closing arguments are scheduled for Wednesday morning. Bull did not testify in his own defense. On the final day of testimony, the Puro Journal Star stated, Police scientist defends DNA tests. Murder trial is expected to go to jury today. A state police scientist took the stand Tuesday to defend tests from his laboratory that prosecutors say point to Donald Bull Jr. as the murderer of mother and daughter. William Frank, a forensic scientist with the state police who reviewed David Metzger's work, said there was no problem with Metzger's methodology. I would not question the match, he said. The two samples definitely match. He also took issue with Ostrowski's claim that a transparency of Bull's DNA which was tested on a separate gel, had to match exactly one place atop the other, the transparency of unknown DNA taken from Tompkins. On Monday, when Ostrowski laid the two atop one another, there was no match. But Frank pointed out that since the two DNA samples were from two different gels, they stretched out at different lengths. The important factor to remember, he said, is that both have equal proportions, meaning that a comparison can be made only by checking relevant chromosome placement on one sample against the placement of the other. He illustrated to the jury that certain chromosomes from Bull's sample matched emplacement chromosomes on the DNA sample taken from the Tompkins. We can mathematically determine that match, said Frank. However, ladies and gentlemen, the long day of testimony on that ninth day of April began with the court asking Mr. Parkinson, 
Frank here yet? With Mr. Parkinson responding, yes. And Mr. Danner stating, I have got Sarah Haynes here today too. As Sarah Haynes took the stand, she was asked to record and spell her last name. Sarah Haynes, H-A-Y-N-E-S. Sarah, are you married? Yes. To who? David. And that would be David Haynes? Yes. Okay, Sarah, when did you become acquainted with David? I first met him in February of 1986 when I began working at the bank. The National Bank of Canton? Yes. Sarah, did there come a point in time when you began dating David? Yes. Did that dating relation ultimately end up in a marriage? Yes. Would you advise us of the date of your marriage? October of 1989. And Sarah, I'm going to ask you, as a result of this union between you and David, did you have any children together? Yes. How many? We have two. Sarah, I want to direct your attention. Oh, excuse me, before I get there. Are you employed, Sarah? Yes. Where at? Interstate Brands Butternut Bakery. What is Interstate Brands Butternut Bakery? It is the single largest wholesale bakery in the United States of America. And where do you work at for that bakery? I work at the Peoria office. Okay. And can you tell the people approximately how many miles? What town do you live in? Canton. How many miles is it from where you live in Canton to your place of employment in Peoria? About 30. Okay. Now, Sarah, I want to direct your attention to the date of January 12th, 1993. Was that a special day for your family? That was my son's first birthday. And I'm going to ask you, Sarah, did David arrive home after his work day? Yes. And I'm going to ask you if you would just tell us what you did at home that night. We had a birthday party planned for my son and my father-in-law. It was his 71st birthday. I had my son on his 70th birthday. But the weather was bad that day. It had rained and ice stormed, and the roads were bad, and he couldn't come. So we decided what we were going to do was have a party with just the four of us. I went ahead and made Cornish hens and mashed potatoes and gravy. And we ate dinner and had cake and ice cream. And we videotaped it for his first birthday. And did you have the opportunity or occasion at night to put the children to bed? Probably put the kids to bed about 8.30 or a quarter to 9. Okay, I will ask you what time did you start that dinner that evening, if you can tell me. Oh, probably, I probably started at about 5 so we could eat at about 7. You started cooking at 5. Yeah, it takes a while to make Cornish hens. I'm going to ask you, Sarah. Where was David at the time that you were doing these things? He was playing with the kids. At home? Yeah, at home. And you had your cake? Yes. Okay. And you put the kids to bed at 8.30, 8.45, somewhere in that vicinity, is that correct? Right. Uh-huh. What did you and David do after the kids were put to bed? Uh, that was a Tuesday. So that would have been a big Tuesday on ESPN. So we watched a basketball game. And do you recall approximately what time you and David went to bed that evening? Okay, the game started at 9, so I probably went to bed about halftime. Got ready for bed and turned the TV on in the bedroom. It probably would have been 9.30 or 10. And he finished watching the game and then came to bed about 11. Do you share a common bedroom? Yes. A common bed? Yes. Did he come to bed that evening? Yes. Do you know where he was from the time you came to bed until the time that you got up the next morning? Yes. Where was that? In bed. Now, what position do you have at the bakery? Um, kind of like a lead man. I do all the ordering and packaging of ingredients. I schedule their arrivals and how much we need, things like that. I fill in when someone is sick in different departments. Now, Sarah, did you have a work time you were to report to work on the morning of January the 13th, 1993? 
Yes. What time was that? I'm sorry. What time are you supposed to report in? Uh, at that time I believe I had to be punched in by 7.30. And do you recall approximately what time you got up on the morning of January 13th, 1983? 6.15. And when you got up, did you see anyone else in bed with you? My husband. Okay. And what did you do from 6.15 on that morning? I just took a shower and got ready for work. And I'm going to ask you, can you approximate for me approximately what time you left your residence that morning to go to work? If I want to be there on time, I have to leave 10 to 7. Well, I hope I left by 10 to 7, but it was probably more like 5 till. I am notoriously late. And when you left for work, who was at your home, Sarah? David and both kids. And did he have any responsibilities that morning? His job every morning is to get both kids ready to go to their sitters. How old were your two youngsters? One and just two. Were you acquainted with Justine Tompkins? Yes. And were there any occasions that you can recall where Justine had shared a common babysitter with your children? Yes. Can you tell me when that was? It would have been for one of the bank Christmas parties, I think. I have a sitter and she had one of the ladies that worked at the bank's daughter already scheduled. And I asked if she could bring Justine to my house with her sitter and let her watch Jennifer there. She said yes. Do you recall what Christmas party? What year that Christmas party was in? That would have been the year before my son was born, so like 1991. December of 1991. Yes. And did you from time to time have occasion to see Justine? Yes. Did you have opportunities from time to time to visit with Donna Tompkins on the phone? Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about the circumstance of these visits on the telephone with Donna that you had? My mom had cancer for quite a few years, and Donna's mom was suffering at that same time from cancer. And she was having a hard time with the progression of how quickly her mother was getting ill. And wanted to talk to me because my mom had already been through several treatment courses and remissions. And we talked all about that. Was David home when you did that? No. When did these occur? I usually get him from work earlier because I go in earlier. So she could call me at home before he came home from work. And that way we could, you know, I could talk to her in private, you know, girl talk. Sarah, did you have any animosity against Donna Tompkins or Justine Tompkins? No. I have no further questions. The court. Any questions from the defense? Miss McMillan. Thank you, Your Honor. Good morning, Miss Haynes. Good morning. If I understand your testimony correctly, on February, excuse me, January the 13th, 1993, you believe you left work that morning approximately 10 to 5 to 7, is that correct? Yes. And you stated, I believe, also that the night before, after the birthday party, and after you and your husband watched, I believe, a ball game on television, that you went to bed, and then your husband came to bed at a later time, is that correct? Yes. And do you remember what time you went to bed? You came to bed at 11. Okay, and do you recall being interviewed by Agent Kedzer of the Illinois State Police and ATF Agent Gary Smith at your home on January the 21st, 1993? I know they came over and talked to me. I couldn't tell you the date. Okay, and do you recall telling them on that date when they asked you what time your husband had gone to bed, saying that you had a terrible memory and that you knew he came to bed but you didn't know what time? That is not true. You didn't tell them that? No. 
Would a copy of the report they made refresh your memory, maybe? No. Pardon? No. Mr. Parkinson. We object. She said that it wouldn't. Closing arguments in the case, which you have already heard in previous episodes, wrapped up the following day, April 10th, and late that afternoon, after the judge instructed the jurors that the defendant, who was presumed guilty, to be innocent of the charges against him, and that that presumption of innocence which had remained with him through every stage of the trial, shall now remain with him during deliberations on the verdict. It should not be overlooked unless, from all the evidence in the case, they were convinced beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendant was guilty and that then, and only then, they should find the defendant guilty. And the case was handed off to the jury, whom were sequestered during deliberations. At around 6.30 p.m., after only two hours of deliberating, the jury announced they had a verdict, whereupon the jury was returned to the courtroom. The court, you may be seated. Let the record show People versus Donald Bull, the jury has returned with a verdict. Court, has the jury reached a verdict? Four person. We have, Your Honor. The court, would the foreman please hand the verdict to the bailiff, whereupon the four person complied. The court, would the clerk please read the verdict? The clerk, we the jury find the defendant Donald Bull guilty of first degree murder of Donna Tompkins. We, the jury, find the defendant, Donald Bull, guilty of first-degree murder of Justine Tompkins. We, the jury, find the defendant, Donald Bull, guilty of concealment of a homicidal death of Donna Tompkins. We, the jury, find the defendant, Donald Bull, guilty of concealment of a homicidal death of Justine Tompkins. We, the jury, find the defendant, Donald Bull, guilty of aggravated arson. Court, poll the jury, please. Madam Clerk, Kathy McCormick, is this and was this your true and lawful verdict? Yes. Roger Wilson, was this and is this your true and lawful verdict? Yes. Marion Mosley, was this and is this your true and lawful verdict? Yes. James Zimmerman, is this and was this your true and lawful verdict? Yes. Nicholas Weiss, is this and was this your true and lawful verdict? Yes. Harold Weppner, is this and was this your true and lawful verdict? It is. Ruth Atkinson, is this and was this your true and lawful verdict? Yes. Linda Tripp, is this and was this your true and lawful verdict? Yes. Betty Thompson, is this and was this your true and lawful verdict? Yes, it is. Kathy Holes, was this and is this your true and lawful verdict? Yes. Kathy Knowles, is this and was this your true and lawful verdict? Yes. Alice Varner, is this and was this your true and lawful verdict? Yes. The court, 
let the record show that the court enters judgment upon these verdicts. This case will be continued until tomorrow morning at 10 a.m., at which time we will take up the issue of the death sentence. The jury is to be taken and sequestered as indicated previously, and I'll talk to the bailiffs in a few minutes about that. Alternate jurors, you will be sequestered until such time as a sentence is determined in this case. The court stands adjourned until tomorrow morning at 10 a.m., whereupon the jury was removed from the courtroom. After a brief recess, cause continues in open court as follows. The court, please be seated. Let the record show this is People versus Donald Bull. Show the people present by State's Attorney Ed Danner, Special Assistant State's Attorney Ed Parkinson. The defendant is present in person by his attorneys Dean Stone and Alyssa McMillan. The jury has reached a verdict of guilty to all 10 counts of the indictment, and the court had indicated that we would start the sentencing phase before the jury in the morning at 10 a.m. I understand that the defense has a motion at this time. Ms. McMillan, that is correct, Your Honor. At this time, we would request the court that we would be permitted to waive jury on the question of eligibility for the death penalty and sentencing hearing and ask that those decisions be made by the court at a later hearing. The court. Mr. Bull, do you understand that you have a right to a jury trial on the question of whether or not, first of all, you're eligible for the death sentence, and secondly, whether the death sentence should be imposed in this case? The defendant. Yes, sir. The court, have you had an opportunity to discuss the options with your attorneys, Mr. Stone and Ms. McMillan, in this regard? Yes. And it is indicated by your attorneys that you wish to waive the right to a jury trial on the issue of whether or not the death sentence should be imposed and have that sentence made by the court, which would be myself in this case. Is that correct? Yes, Your Honor. Do you have any questions about the rights that you're waiving in this regard? No. You have discussed this with your lawyers, as I have indicated? Yes. And it is your desire to have the decision of whether or not the death sentence is to be imposed by the court as opposed to the jury? Yes. Do you have any questions about that, sir? No, sir. Let the record show that the court accepts the waiver of the defendant with respect to the jury deciding the issue of the death penalty, that that would be the decision of the court. This case is continued until May 7th, at which time we will take up the issues as indicated with respect to the death sentence in this case. Is there any further motion before the court? All right, the defendant is remanded to custody. This court stands adjourned. April 11th, 1996. Bull guilty of seven counts of murder. Judge will make death penalty decision. Peoria General Star, Carthage. After two and a half weeks of testimony and more than 80 witnesses, it took a Hancock County jury just two hours to find Donald Bull Jr. guilty in the January 1993 deaths of mother and daughter in Canton. The jury was charged with the case at 4.20 p.m. after more than five hours of closing arguments Wednesday. A verdict was reached at 6.20 p.m. Bull showed no emotion during the reading of the verdict as friends and family members of victims Donna and Justine Tompkins wept in the courtroom. To reporters as he was led out of the courthouse. Not guilty, Bull muttered. Eight weeks later, Judge Henderson found Donnie Bull eligible for capital punishment, dismissing what he called the barrage of jailhouse motions, and Donnie's death penalty hearing began. During mitigation, 
after a father and sister and Donna's estranged husband, John Tompkins, stood before the judge to speak on Donna and Justine's behalf, asking for the ultimate punishment. Dr. Michael Gelbart took the stand to testify on Donnie's behalf, claiming that Donnie had a mental impairment due to a low IQ and a traumatic brain injury that caused him to misperceive information and react inappropriately, reasserting the fact that Donnie only read at a first grade level, spelled at a fourth grade level, and scored in the bottom two percentile on many of the tests he had performed, stating that such problems could lead to impaired logic and then misperceptions and frustrations, which could cause Donnie to act inappropriately and that for this reason, in addition to the highly traumatizing childhood abuse, which a cousin and a sister reaffirmed on the stand, that Donnie was often severely beaten by his father, Don Sr., referring to Donnie as a caring young man. Thus, attorney Dean Stone argued that life in prison would be, in essence, a sentence to death, just a natural one. Stating that there were many unanswered questions about the case, including why there was no sign of forced entry to the apartment, and why there was no gasoline can at the scene of an arson finally suggesting that Bull might in fact be innocent. Therefore, he should not be put to death. A sentence of life without parole is a sentence of death that allows him to watch his children grow. That is fair. That is just. However, as sincere as Stone's argument was, the testimonies made on Donnie's behalf aggravated Donnie, as he disagreed with McMillan's approach to mitigation, presenting testimonies that might explain his supposed wrongdoing. In other words, portraying a particular narrative which might illuminate the causes behind Donnie's murderous actions, actions which Donnie still staunchly denied, as he firmly proclaimed his innocence. This anger led Donnie to state, quote, I'm facing the death penalty here, adding that he believed that he had the right to mitigation of his choice. Donnie filed a handwritten motion requesting a new trial, and that his defense attorneys be dismissed. Henderson found the motions groundless, and as you might recall, he justified his ruling by stating, quote, I see nothing to indicate that these motions are anything but spurious. This case was one of the best tried cases I've seen, unquote. And on June 5th, 1996, after the last day of mitigation, after state's attorney Ed Danner labeled Donnie Bull a vile creature and a monster, Donnie Bull pleaded for his life through tears. I fear death very much. Please do not put me to death and tell people justice has been done because it hasn't. I did not kill Donna or Justine Tompkins or start any fires. And at the close of the sentencing hearing, Judge Henderson concluded that there were no mitigating circumstances sufficient to preclude the imposition of the death penalty. The Court Will the defendant please rise? Mr. Bull, I have reviewed the factors in aggravation and mitigation in this case. I find essentially that the state's characterization is the correct one. There are no statutory factors in mitigation. In aggravation, you have caused the death of two people and you have a criminal record. The other factors in mitigation that were brought forth concerning your background and concerning your academic problems, concerning the problems you had growing up with your family, do not rise to the level of mitigation in the court's view. In fact, they do not even help understand, or anyone understand, what you have done here. You snuck into this young woman's apartment at night, and you raped her, and you strangled her to death. And if you would have stopped there, I think life without parole would have been an acceptable sentence. But you didn't stop there. You heard that little girl, and you strangled her, and then you set them on fire to cover your tracks. But you didn't cover your tracks, because this isn't a totally circumstantial case. 
You left your little deposit, your DNA, in that young woman. And despite your efforts to cover that up, you have been unsuccessful. Like I said, if you would have stopped with Donna Tompkins, I think life without parole would have been acceptable, but you didn't. You heard Justine, who couldn't identify you, couldn't testify against you, and you killed her. And for that, Donald Bull, I sentence you to death. You scum, shouted Donna Tompkins' father. I'm Corey Zimmerman, and this is Spoon River Gothic. Ladies and gentlemen, if I may have your attention for one moment as I introduce Spoon River Gothic Season 2, Death Rides the Highway, a thrill ride fueled by murder and terror, the motive of this cross-country killing spree at its heart, storytelling. And though this horrid crime is true, the story was birthed by imagination, as those people, the players involved, created their own characters and then took to the road to not only discover, but rain down upon their preferred setting. Then, through one unspeakable vile act after another, these characters wrote a story, an adventure only these characters could have dreamt of. Set free in a world where destiny quickly took one expected turn after the next, an absorbing tale of two individuals whose paths seemed destined never to cross, yet had. Meet 18-year-old honor student Lisa Dunn, whose seemingly idyllic life and background were undoubtedly worlds apart from 28-year-old self-proclaimed bad boy Daniel Eugene Remetta, a product of a turbulent, neglectful, and abusive upbringing, who found himself on a collision course with the criminal underworld from a young age. Growing up in the shadow of alcoholism, a childhood marked by habitual encounters with law enforcement, Danny's life was marred by violence and chaos from the start. In stark contrast, Lisa Dunn's life was on a trajectory toward college and a promising future. Until shortly before their fateful meeting, she embodied a well-cared-for, academically successful teenager from a loving and well-to-do middle-class home. But then, suddenly her grades slipped. She experimented with drugs and even ran away from home to Florida, signaling her growing discomfort with the life that had been assigned to her. And when Lisa and Danny's past crossed, it was at that crossroads, that crosshair in life, that caused an abrupt turn into not only uncharted territory, but terror. At Radio Verte, we aim to unravel this captivating tale of how these two vastly different individuals came together. We will deeply explore the intricate dynamics that led to a cross-country, multi-state killing spree, one marked and dog-eared for all time by early-onset mass murder, in a time of social change just at that dawn when murderous violence would spill out across the nation. As we delve into the narrative, we'll grapple with the haunting question, who was manipulating who? Who transitioned into an active accomplice? And with the complex interplay of Danny and Lisa's conflicting backgrounds and terrible choices, along with the influence of consequential figures like former altar boy turned cold-blooded killer, tag-along Mark Walter, and hitchhiking Vietnam vet J.C. Catfish Hunter, just what sociopathic crimes would transpire. 
Follow along with Spoon River Gothic Season 2, Death Rides the Highway, as we present a compelling true crime road saga that will challenge your understanding of human capacity for both darkness and redemption. Coming February 2024, wherever you get your podcasts. Spoon River Gothic is a production of Lone Bird Media in association with CZ Studio and Radio Verite. The show is produced by August Olson. Editing, directing, and producing by Corey Zimmerman. Audio mastering and engineering by E. Mastered. Research is done by Anne-Marie Cannon, Chelsea Mesa, and me, Jinra Illustrisimo. Spoon River Gothic is written and hosted by Corey Zimmerman. You can follow the show at czstudio.works and read the blog at spoonrivergothic.com. Show some love by leaving us a rating or a review on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And stay tuned for the next episode as we dive deeper into the Donald Bull case. Thank you for listening. This is Spoon River Gothic, narrative of a double homicide.